Revelation chapter 1, let's begin at verse 1 and read together, shall we? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he said and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Lord, open our hearts today that we may receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in bright relationship with you, and especially I pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith and ask that you will draw them back to your side, to a place of repentance, that not one of them will be lost. I lift up to you the concerns that are on the hearts of the people of this congregation, both in-house and online. And I ask that you will extend your grace of help to them right at the point of their need. Today, Lord, I submit myself to you once again. And I ask for that special touch. I ask for strength that you will assist and help so that I may proclaim your truth with confidence, with clarity. That Jesus Christ will be lifted up in all that is done in this remainder of this service. I pray these things now in the only name that matters, the strong, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The time is somewhere between A.D. 90 and A.D. 95. The fledgling Christian faith had once been tolerated and even defended and protected by the powerful Romans who ruled the land, but Now the tide has shifted, and the church has come under severe persecution. The emperor Domitian has declared himself to be divine. Under his rule, Roman law has been written to state that no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. The aged, beloved elder, John, was arrested and brought before such a tribunal. When he refused to renounce his faith and declare that Caesar is Lord, 
the Roman government sought to make an example of him by torturing him, thereby dissuading others from following Jesus. Their plans were foiled at every attempt. Tradition tells us they even tried to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't boil. Regardless of the punishment inflicted, he would not recant his faith, he would not deny his Lord, and he would not acknowledge the emperor as divine. Finally, when they had exhausted every other means of persuasion, in exasperation, they exiled him to a rocky, desolate, six-mile by ten-mile island in the Aegean Sea, an island called Patmos. On this island of Patmos, the Roman government operated a penal colony that served in the island's mines. There, in slave labor, they sought to work this beloved elder to death because he refused to renounce his faith. Now, for most of us, if we were faced with that kind of persecution, we would cave. We would be crushed under the pressure. Just, just think for a moment about how impossible this situation seems. Here's this beloved church leader on a barren desert island. Here he is amid the worst of the worst in the Roman Empire. Here he is. He's been persecuted and tortured. He's exiled. He's in the midst of criminals being baked by the sun, having barely enough to sustain life. As far as he knows, there is no hope of ever again being with family and friends. As far as he knows, there is no hope of ever again having the pleasure of the company of the redeemed. All around him is depravity and blasphemy and everything that is unholy. This is just about as bad as it can possibly get. But listen to what he writes in verse 10. In the midst of this impossible situation, he writes... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. All week long, it's been as bad as it can possibly be. All week long, my spirit's been crushed. All week long, I've been mistreated. All week long, I've been abused. All week long, I've been lied on, cheated on, talked about, mistreated. But somehow, on Sunday morning, he was able to find a little quiet space. He was able to get alone with God, and it wasn't long before he found himself in the Spirit. Now, that may not do a whole lot for you, but I got to tell you, that causes a little bit of excitement to spring up in my heart today because I know something about how to get in the Spirit. I know something about how to get in the presence of the Lord. See, you get in the Spirit by Psalm 100, verse 4, when you enter His gates with thanksgiving, and you come into His courts with praise, and you're thankful unto Him, and you bless His name. That's how you get in the Spirit. Think about it. Here's this aging follower of Jesus in the worst possible place. But even in the midst of all this despair and poverty of soul and spirit, here he is and he's 
worshiping. When he began to worship, he discovered the truth of Psalm 139 and 8. If I make my bed in hell, I can still find you. Behold, you are there. In the midst of his worship, he found the same thing the prophet found in Isaiah chapter 6 when he wrote, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. When everything was going wrong, when everything around him had broken apart. When strength had failed and hope had vanished, John managed to get himself into the place of worship. And I want to suggest to you right on the front end of this series of messages that it never gets so dark that you can't worship. It never gets so bad that you can't lift your eyes in faith to the Lord. No matter how distressed you are right now, you can still make a decision to trust the Lord and to praise the Lord and to worship the Lord. See, worship will get your eyes just a little bit higher than your circumstance, and it'll help you see that where you are right now is not the end of the story. This present darkness is not the way it's always going to be. God is still on his throne. He still rules over the kings of the earth. He still has the final of authority. He still reigns. And if you'll start praising and worshiping him, it won't be long before you'll find yourself in the spirit. Everything around you may be falling apart, but you'll get a revelation of Jesus that will enable you to stand when everyone else around you falls. You'll get a revelation of Jesus that will give you hope when everyone around you is despairing. You'll get a revelation of Jesus that will cause you to triumph when everyone else around you is trampled in the dust of defeat. Somebody ought to give praise to the Lord in this house today. So oftentimes when we think of the apocalypse, our thoughts turn to doom and destruction. When we read the book of the Revelation, the things that seem to stick in our minds are bowls of wrath and trumpets of judgment and tribulation and epic battles and strange creatures of punishment. What I want you to know is that this book of the Revelation isn't something to be feared. This book isn't really about doom and destruction. That isn't the point of this book. Even in the midst of the prophetic descriptions of wrath and judgment and all the things that are going to happen as this age winds down and ultimately closes, the primary message of this book is a message of hope. See, this is a book about Jesus. According to verse 1 that we read, right on the very front end of it, we are told it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you take the time to wade through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and everything else in the book, what you discover time and time again is Jesus. Jesus is revealed in this book as the ultimate victor. What Jesus accomplished spiritually at Calvary and what Jesus is presently accomplishing in the life of every believer now in this book becomes manifest reality in all the earth. You know, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it or not, but the Bible has a marvelous symmetry and continuity to it. And everything that gets started in the book of, in the book of Genesis 
finds its completion and fulfillment in the book of the Revelation. See, in Genesis, the earth is created. In Revelation, the earth passes away. In Genesis was Satan's first rebellion. In Revelation is Satan's last rebellion. In Genesis, the sun, moon, and stars were for earth's government. In Revelation, these same heavenly bodies are for earth's judgment. In Genesis, the sun is created to rule the day. In Revelation, there is no need for the sun. In Genesis, darkness is called night. In Revelation, there is no more night. In Genesis, the waters are called seas. In Revelation, there is no more sea. In Genesis is the entrance of sin. In Revelation is the exodus of sin. In Genesis, the curse is pronounced. In Revelation, the curse is removed. In Genesis, death enters the human condition. In Revelation, there is no more death. In Genesis is the beginning of sorrow and suffering. In Revelation, there is no more sorrow and no more tears. In Genesis, there is the marriage of the first Adam. In Revelation, there is the marriage of the last Adam. In Genesis, we see man's city Babylon being built. In Revelation, man's city Babylon is destroyed, and God's city, the new Jerusalem, is brought into view. In Genesis, Satan's doom is pronounced. In Revelation, Satan's doom is executed. All the way through the book, Jesus is revealed as the victorious, triumphant Lord. Now, now John wastes no time in sounding this theme of a triumphant Christ. We read it earlier, but I want to look at it again. Let's look again at verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, <clears throat> what I've found is that most of us who have been in the church for any length of time and who read our Bibles, most of us have grown so accustomed to hearing the ideas that are written in these verses that they tend to lose their impact on us. They just kind of wash over us. Okay, that's, that's good. Let's move on to the next thing. So what I'd like to ask you for just a moment to do is try and hear these with fresh ears. Hear, try to hear these verses as if you are part of the congregation who read them for the very first time. Now think about where you are. Roman rule prevails. To declare yourself a follower of Jesus, to be baptized into the Christian faith, is to sign your death warrant. By the way, do you understand that there are still places today where that is true? 
immorality and perversion are not only condoned, they are applauded. Does that sound familiar? Evil is having a continuous party in the streets. And it looks as if right and truth and justice have been counted out for the last time. Now, maybe that's too much for you to imagine. So, if it is, just look at your present situation. Review the kind of adversity you've faced in your own life, maybe just in the last three months. Think about the challenges you've faced. Remember the feeling you had that you were never going to surface again. Remind yourself of the despair you have felt as you look at how impossible it all seems. Think of the worried, sleepless nights you've spent. Think of that gnawing in the pit of your stomach, wondering how you were ever going to get out of the hole you're in. Some of you may know what I'm talking about because you may be experiencing some of those feelings right now. Some of you are living on your own personal Patmos right now. Now think about those verses again. In spite of everything that's going on in the known world, in spite of the hardship that this man is enduring on this seemingly God-forsaken island, never once does John suggest that there is even a hint of a problem. Into the world of Roman dictators. Into the world ruled by your circumstances. Into the world ruled by your fickle emotions. John writes in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You hear this preacher today. No matter how powerful the forces in this world appear, whether they be spiritual or physical or circumstantial or emotional, no matter how strong they are, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Name any monarch, any potentate, any king, any ruler, any authority, any principality, any power you will, they must all bow the knee to Jesus, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. See, you need never wonder, no matter the trial, no matter the adversity, no matter how terrible it appears on the outside, no matter what the opposition, in every situation, over every territory, I'm preaching to somebody right now, over every territory, over everyone, and over everything, Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and, and as if... At, as if that weren't enough, the Lord himself reminds us in verse 8 that he is Alpha and Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. What he's saying is that even before the creation of time itself, he is the Almighty. Right now, at this very moment, 
he is the Almighty. Forevermore in the ages to come, he will still be the Almighty. Listen, stop at any point on the continuing line of history. You stop, put your pencil there and mark it. Magnify that point so you can see it clearly. And at that point, you will find Jesus is right there as the Almighty. You make no mistake about it. Right now, at this very moment in your life, if you'll just look carefully, you'll find that he is the Lord God Almighty to you in your situation. No matter what comes or what goes, no matter what it looks like to the casual observer, no matter what the naysayers may proclaim, no matter what the opposition declares, the final decree of the matter is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. Whatever heartache you've experienced, Jesus is Lord. Whatever trouble you've encountered, Jesus is Lord. Whatever burden you're carrying, Jesus is Lord. I'm telling you, he's Lord over the fear that grips your heart. He's Lord over the illness that has attacked your body. He's Lord over the loneliness that crashes on you like waves on the seashore. He's Lord over the heartbreak you had when your loved one abandoned you. He's Lord over the weariness that sets in and saps your strength and steals your vitality. I'm telling you, he's Lord over your anxiety. He's Lord over your depression. He's Lord over your financial crisis. He's Lord over your grief. He's Lord over your pain. He's Lord over your failure. I, I, I know there are forces without and within that would raise their defiant heads and by their presence try to rule over your life. But you make no mistake about it today. Without exception, they must all bow the knee to the one and only supreme authority. Without exception, no matter how reluctantly it comes, they must all bear witness to this one unalterable truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. I know what's trying to rule in your life, but I'm here to tell you Jesus overrules. Jesus overrules. Let me show you the vision John has of this Jesus in verses 12 through 16. It's a little beyond where we read as our text, but I'm, if you haven't figured it out, my text for this message is actually the entire first chapter of the book of the Revelation. I just had to stop at verse 8 so we could get on with it, all right? But here's what John writes. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow, what a vision. It's no wonder verse 17 says he fell down as if dead at the revealed majesty, splendor, and glory of the Christ of God. I think I'd fall down like a dead man too if I saw that. 
Just to put you on notice, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the messages addressed to different churches located in Asia Minor that are recorded in the next couple of chapters of this book. In those letters, we're going to see that certain parts of this description that I just read to you of the majesty of Jesus, they're significant to each of the various churches. But in the interest of time for the message today, I want to call your attention to one more place in this first chapter. It's the last part of verse 12, the first part of verse 13. Here's what John writes. He says, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Then in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And then finally, in verse 20 of this chapter, he gives the explanation of this vision. When he writes, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. Here's the, here's, the, here's the meaning of that. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches that he's getting ready to write these letters to. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, notice that when John saw the Lord, notice where the Lord was. He was walking in the midst of the golden lampstands which verse 20 identifies as the seven churches to whom he is writing. <clears throat> now that's important because you remember when the Apostle Paul wrote his letters to the churches, he wrote based on reports that he received from somebody else. Sometimes those reports were from people who lived in those places and sometimes those reports came to him in letters that were written from that place. But, but Paul wrote his letters based on the account of the issue that he received from others. This is quite the contrast with the letters Jesus writes through John. See, when Jesus got ready to write letters to the seven churches, he didn't rely on secondhand information. He never says, I have heard. He never says, it has been told to me. No. When Jesus writes his letters, he writes from firsthand observation. He is walking in the midst of the church. He has seen what it is like for himself. He holds the reins of authority for the church in his right hand. He knows what he's talking about because he's right there with them. And what I want you to understand before we get out of here today is that Jesus is still in the midst of his church. Let me just ask you, who is the church today? Who is the church? The church is not the building. The church is not the organization. The church is not the denomination. The church is the people. The church is the people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. And I'm telling you, Jesus is still in the midst of his church. He has not abandoned his church. He has bought her. He has redeemed her with his own blood. His promise to the church, that means his promise to you is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how many boards we establish, or how many committees we set up, or how many programs we run, or how many leaders we elect, it is still his church. It isn't the pastor's church. It isn't the elder's church. It isn't the charter member's church. It is his church. And no matter how 
many leave the true faith, and no matter how many try to distort the truth, and no matter how many operate according to human intellect and ingenuity, and no matter how many engage in struggles for power, and no matter how many persecute her, and no matter how many try to water down the message, and no matter how many try to ridicule her, no matter what kind of forces try to stop her, Jesus has always had a people who are called by his name, who make up his bride, the church. And no matter how bleak it may appear at times, Jesus is still walking up and down the aisles of his church. (laughs) So let winds of adversity blow. Let tribulation come. Let dark clouds of oppression cover. Let spiritual forces attack. It is his church. He is in the midst. He is the foundation stone. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. needs to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded because it is so easy to get discouraged when you look at the opposition. It's easy to get discouraged in the midst of a cancel culture that tries to silence the voice of what is right and righteous and true and holy. It's easy to become downhearted When you look at brave comrades who give up and fall around you and abandon the faith, you need to remember today the Lord is in his holy temple. You need to remember at all times the Lord is in the midst of his church. I got I, I to wrap this up. This, this, I'm already over time. There's, there's one, fi- see that's what happens when I don't get to preach last Sunday. I just. <laughs> one final thing I need to bring to your attention in this chapter. <clears throat> when you read the book of the Revelation, pay attention because there are many scenes of this book that are located in heaven while the judgments themselves take place on earth. But pay attention, the the scenes in heaven always precede the earthly events to which they are attached. That's what's going on in the first three chapters. The messages to the seven churches are preceded by the vision of the ascended Lord. In chapter 4 and 5, there is a vision of the Lamb in heaven who is worthy to open the book. That vision is then followed by the actual opening of the seals in chapter 6. On and on throughout the book, the same sequence occurs. First, something takes place in heaven, then it is accomplished on earth. The reason I want you to notice this is because this tells me that nothing that happens on this earth takes God by surprise. Those things that are to take place on earth, even though unknown to man and unexpected by him, are fully known to those in heaven. 
See, God never sits back on his heavenly throne, sees your adversity, and scratches his head and says, wow, I never thought that would happen. Where did that come from? See, regardless of what's going on, it doesn't shake God up. It doesn't take him by surprise. Not only that, but this sequence lets me know that what is to take place on earth is under the complete control and direction of heaven. Somebody shout hallelujah about that, would you? God has not abdicated his throne. He has not surrendered his authority. The world continues to move at his command. And regardless of how it appears, no matter how hopeless your world seems to be spinning out of control, in every situation, God is in control. Oh, it's true. This book of Revelation contains dark and ominous passages. But the central theme running through it is not one of pessimism. Rather, it's one of sunny optimism. We are never for one moment allowed to forget the truth that Jesus will conquer all enemies and that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He shall reign over that peaceable kingdom forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Not only that, but all of us who name the name of the Lord shall inherit that kingdom with him. And with him we shall rule as kings and priests in the kingdom of our God. Now somebody give praise to the Lord for that if you believe it today. I got to quit. How's that for just crash landing the plane? Boom. I hope uh, this, this is kind of the introduction to, to, to the book itself, but especially to the next series of messages we're going to be looking at over the chapter 2 and chapter 3 over the next few weeks. I know this has been a little bit different preaching than you're accustomed to. It hasn't been point one, point two, point three. In fact, when I was doing the presentation, I sent it over to Pastor Jay. I said, don't be alarmed. Uh, yes, it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> But I still think the Lord is speaking to us today. Before we conclude this service, I want to pray with you. There are two groups of people the Lord especially lays on my heart today for prayer. First of all, I want to pray for someone who has not yet surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. There will come a time whether willingly or unwillingly, where every knee will bow and declare Jesus is Lord. I'd much rather be on the willing side than the unwilling. I'd rather do it voluntarily than be forced to do it. I want to talk to you for just a moment. You've been living for yourself. You've been running your life with no thought of God or of eternity. You're not, you're not a bad person. You, you just ignored God. You've left him out of the equation of your life. Well, as you read through this book of the Revelation, one of the things you discover 
is that when all is said and done, the only ones who are going to enjoy eternity are those who have surrendered their life to Jesus. When eternity begins, you don't get a do-over. There are no spiritual mulligans. You don't get to rewind the video and, and take another run at it, do another take. Jesus is Lord. I'm just inviting you to acknowledge that truth and make it a reality for your life by responding to this invitation. Ask God for Jesus' sake to forgive your sin. Repent of following your own path. Submit your will to the will of Jesus. Trust him as your only hope of salvation. Begin the most incredible journey you could ever imagine as you walk with him. That's the first group that I'm wanting to pray with today. The second group the Lord lays on my heart for this invitation is those of you, you're already a follower of Jesus. But something else has been trying to intrude on the throne of your life. It's captured your attention. It's distracted you from the joy and the peace that comes when Jesus is in charge. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's an emotional issue like grief or, or depression or fear. I don't know what it would be for you, but, but today you find yourself on a personal Patmos. I want to invite you to come today and release that to Jesus, to trust him. Give him an opportunity to work and exercise his rulership over that place. I'm going to ask the elders who are present in the service today, I'm going to ask you if you would stand, please, and come and stand here in the front for just a moment, please, so you can pray with people. Come down. Thank you. I know I pulled this on you. I didn't prepare you for it, but it's part of being instant in season and out of season. You know. Now, let's stand together as a congregation, please. And if you want to respond to this invitation, you feel the need for prayer. I'm going to ask you to just come to one of these elders and they're going to pray with you. If you want to come and surrender your heart to Jesus, they'll just quietly pray with you and you can make, and that can happen right now. Or maybe you have a need for God to touch you in a different, a different area. You've got a personal patmos going on and you need direction or you need God's help. I'm going to ask you to come. Pastor Larry's going to lead us and we're going to worship for a moment. And while we're singing, would you just come and we're going to pray for you we're going to believe that God is going to touch your life today and he's going to help you right at the point of your need. His grace is going to be extended. You come now while we sing. He is here. Hallelujah. He is here. Amen. He is here.
and touch him. 